Hello, everybody, and welcome. Today we're going to be looking at a set of notes entitled Totalitarianism. This set of notes is going to be going with a lesson plan that we have in the work packet um, that you're going to be completing a tri-Venn diagram. We've already done this a couple of times throughout the school year on comparing and contrasting three states and figuring out whether or not these states are totalitarian. Uh, one of the states is going to be the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. The next one is going to be Mussolini's Italy under a fascist state. And then the last one would be Hitler's Nazi Germany. Now, if you're looking in your packet, your third page, you're going to see a list of questions. Questions are describe the leader, style of the leader, describe their supporters, political views, enemies, economic views. How do they rise to power on the reverse side of the back side on page four? What are his social and his views concerning class as well as concerning women? What you want to do is you not only want to listen perhaps to this lecture and have um, uh, go over the notes, but you please want to make sure that you read the textbook. The textbook is going to give you the answers for each one of those questions per leader. What you're going to be doing is reading all three of the sections, and each question should have three answers. One answer concerning Stalin, one concerning Mussolini, and one concerning Hitler. So you should have three answers for each of the questions. When you're finished with reading the section, answering those questions, you're going to take your answers and plot them on the tri-Venn diagram or tri-diagram. And then once the diagram is complete, you can get a better understanding of who you um, who would match up best with a definition that I'll be giving you on the slides, <clears throat> indicating what a totalitarian leader is, what they should be, and if those three leaders match up to the definition. The question, the final question that you're going to be answering is a summary question. You can find that on Google Classroom. Um, on the paper, it says 50 points, but because I'm probably not going to be collecting the packets anytime soon. I'm going to make this 100 points. So your most important question to answer is going to be the last one. Uh, the summarizing question on page four of your work packets, are these three states totalitarian? Why or why not? You want to make sure that your answer has three parts. What makes Stalin a totalitarian or not? What makes Mussolini a totalitarian state or not? What makes Hitler a totalitarian or not? You want to make sure you have at least two pieces of evidence per person, per potential totalitarian state. And you want to make sure when you complete it with that, that you send it via Google Classroom. Okay, let's get on with the notes. If you look at the second slide, you're going to see the title totalitarianism defined. This is the definition that you're going to be basing your reading and basing your answer, your summarizing answer on. Do these thinkers match up well with the definition? If the answer is yes, then we can perhaps agree that they're totalitarian. If the answer is no, then maybe they lack in parts. So the definition says, a political system in which a state holds total authority over the society and seeks to control all aspects of public and private life. Now, the root word of totalitarianism is total or complete. So here we are talking about a state that has total or complete control over two major aspects of your life, anything you do public and every, anything that you do private. So the moment you walk out of your house and you're in the public arena, you are under watch. You are under surveillance. Big Brother, 
uh, to kind of steal a term from Orwellian 1984, Big Brother is watching you. Right? Everything that you do is under the watchful eye of the state to make sure that you're falling in line and that you are showing that you agree with the state. Uh, but the second word is tricky, private life. What happens within your home? Can the state watch over you? Can the state spy on you? And here we are in the 1920s and 1930s where perhaps the technology is not as advanced as it is today um, where you can have microphones placed into a home to listen to the people. Um, there's going to be ways, however. Uh, some of these leaders are going to find innovative ways to infiltrate the house and spy on the children, spy on the parents to make sure that not only what they're doing outside the home, but also within the home also is agreed upon by the state. A totalitarian regime or totalitarian government usually has a cult following of a charismatic leader, meaning that there is upwards of potential worship, gratitude, obedience, uh, love of uh, the leader of the state. It might be Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini, but oftentimes the propaganda is attempting to paint these men as being um, manly, uh, definitely a sense, of, a sense of machismo, but trying to show that they that you should be devoted to them, that they are the heads of state and they are great. And men should want to be like them. Women should want to be with them. This type of, um, I, mean, I don't think there's any other way to say it, but ridiculous type of, uh, of propaganda to try to lead men and women into making choices based off of the charisma of the leader. Totalitarian actions include police terror, indoctrination, propaganda, censorship, and religious and ethnic persecution. By police terror, there usually is some sort of high-end guard um, policed, police group that subjects the people of that state to obedience. If somebody steps out of line, there is the police guard to beat or potentially shoot and kill those who are not falling in line. Indoctrination, usually that's brainwashing. We see it oftentimes within totalitarian states, especially at a, a lower level for children in school, that they are so brainwashed that they believe the ideology of the, the government. And once you brainwash that young group, if it's successful, not only you'll have them as children, but when they grow up, you'll also have their kids. Those children growing up will be the parents who will teach that same ideology to the next generation and so on and so forth. Propaganda. Usually totalitarian regimes try to create a large amount of propaganda to stop the outside world or sometimes even dissidents within the country from speaking out or showing what the country has done that uh, the leader has done that's wrong. So the propaganda will convince them or change their opinion. Censorship, usually dealing with the arts or books or anybody who is speaking out against the government will be censored or quieted. Oftentimes in totalitarian states, there's only one form of art that's allowed, and that's the form of art that is expected or wanted or appreciated by the government. And then religious and ethnic persecution. There's oftentimes one group. Sometimes it's a religious minority group. Sometimes it's an ethnic minority group that is oftentimes picked upon. And the picking of that minority group or picking on that minority group um, oftentimes lets the majority within the country feel better about themselves and makes them feel more united. So our first set of notes, this will be divided into three parts, is going to look at communist Russia, and then we'll go into Mussolini's Italy, and we'll go into Hitler's uh, Germany. So if you move on to the next slide, you're going to see communist Russia 1924. 
The last time we left off on communist Russia, we were talking about Lenin and his eventual demise. And if we remember correctly, in 1918, he had survived an assassination attempt. The bullet uh, entered his neck and from there and in there it remained up until 1924. 1924, Lenin's condition has deteriorated. Uh, he is on his deathbed and there is a decision that Lenin has to make. Who is he going to leave the Communist Party to? Now, this is not to say that Lenin is simply going to pull a name out of a hat or he's going to give the Communist Party to one person. What he's going to do is write the name of the individual that he feels is best to take over his position. And there are really two men that are vying for that position, uh, Lenin's right-hand man and Lenin's left-hand man. So number one up there, you see Lenin's left-hand man, uh, Joseph Stalin. Um, Stalin himself is much more street smart than the second that you see there, the right-hand man, Trotsky. Trotsky is much more the book smart type of guy. Uh, but both of them bring something different, two different characteristics. And when Lenin was on his deathbed, originally he had chosen the best guy for the job. That was Leon Trotsky. And then before he died, he changed. Lenin changed his mind and wrote in Joseph Stalin's name in his letter. Uh, and from there, Stalin really has some sort of documentation of paperwork to say that the great leader, the great communist leader, our first communist leader of the Soviet Union, selected me to take over power. And that is going to be a huge weight that is going to be used or can be used when Stalin needs to use it potentially in the future to remind the Russian people who their great leader originally selected. So we go on to the next slide. You're going to see an image of Yosef Dugashvili. This is Joseph Stalin when he was a man in his 20s. Uh, if you notice, his last name changed. The reason why he changed it is that Dugashvili is a Georgian last name. It's not Russian, ethnically Russian. It's Georgian. Uh, and at the time, Russians were usually classified into two parts, those who were Russian and those second-class citizens who weren't. So if you were from Georgia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Armenia, you were a second-class citizen. The Russians, the Slavic Western Russians, were considered the great Russians, the white Russians. And so if Yosef Dugashvili was to come into Russia and try to make a name for himself, his last name potentially would be his demise. He's the son of a, a shoemaker, and he eventually becomes a member of the Bolshevik Party, becomes really close with Lenin. Uh, his father, Joseph's father, was an alcoholic and a horrible man and would oftentimes beat Yosef uh, when he was young. Uh, this is one of the similarities you're going to see and oftentimes hear about between Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler is that their family life, especially their father's relationship with them, was so damaging uh, as a young child that it potentially led to a lot of trauma and might have made them um, who they eventually become, murderers of their own people. Um, on one occasion, Yosef's uh, mother wanted Yosef to get a good education, but his father had this view that if he, he meaning the, the father, had not had a good life and had to become a shoemaker, a cobbler, then his son Yosef was going to have the same fate. Uh, almost as if, you know, my life is messed up and so my son's life has to be messed up. Usually, you assume as a parent you want something better for your children. You want them to have that education. You want them to have a better life in the future. That wasn't the case for Joseph's father. And so one day while Joseph's mother took him to a local school to get an education, when the father found out 
uh, he went to the school, pulled Joseph out, and beat him up uh, to a point where I believe that he was unconscious, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and eventually, after the beatings, as Joseph um, grew up, he left home. And he becomes a wanderer, and he'll move around from location to location. He becomes a thief, a murderer, a man who's willing for any price to get his hands dirty. And from this time period where he's a vagabond, he eventually finds a home with the Bolsheviks. If we go on the next slide, you're going to see a young man. His name's Leon Trotsky. And if you notice here yet again, um, Leon Trotsky, and Trotsky is not really the last name. It's Lev Davovich Bronstein. And Lev Davovich Bronstein, you might get an indication of what religious group uh, Leon Trotsky belongs to. He's Jewish. He's born in the South Ukraine. He's not Russian as well. So here we have two men that are going to be taking over uh, the leadership position in the Communist Party, and both of them are not Russian. Uh, Trotsky sounds uh, a Russian, but Trotsky also sounds not Jewish. And so Lev Davidovich Bronstein decides that he's going to change his, main, uh, his name, one, to cover the fact that he's Jewish, and two, to make it seem that he is Russian-born. Now, We've already gone over some history with Russia, especially in the 1880s and the 1890s under Alexander III, the very massive man, if you remember the one who survived the, uh, the, tr the train explosion with his family. He had been submitting Jews to massive pogroms in Russia in the 1880s and 1890s to the point where Jews got fed up with that style of life and they left and many of them ended up coming here to the United States. And so it was not good at all to be Jewish in Russia at the time. And so with uh, Trotsky um, changing his name, um, he is going to find a home with the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks are a minority group, a communist group, but they're not, they're not willing to get their hands dirty and kill people for the arrival of a socialist state in Russia. But interesting enough, where Stalin came from a lower class family, he's son of a shoemaker. Here we have Leon Trotsky who comes from a wealthy farming farming class. And so here we have a, a man who's in the middle class dabbling with communism, which is the enemy of uh, enemy ideology of the working of the excuse me of the middle class. Where on the other side, Joseph Stalin, that makes sense. Joseph Stalin comes from a working class family. And so it makes it seem that it would be right that he would be romanticized by the same ideology that would promote the working class. Not true for Trotsky. The next slide, you're going to see a picture of Stalin and Trotsky, much older. This is around the time where they are going to be in a head-to-head -head competition and vote, excuse me, to see who's going to become the next leader of Russia. And it is tight, and it looks like Trotsky is going to pull off a victory until Stalin, and only few knew about this, Stalin being one of them and Lenin being another, until Stalin used his trump card. And one day while giving a speech, Stalin exposes Trotsky as being Jewish, and Trotsky reads the writing on the wall, and he realizes that this is going to haunt him. Not only is it going to cost him the election, but eventually it is going to cost him the ability to stay in Russia. He will be kicked out of the country, and Trotsky will eventually uh, travel the world, still promoting socialism, but oftentimes speaking out against Stalin's uh, total state. Um, and eventually he'll find a home in Mexico with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, and one day, I believe in the 1930s, while enjoying a, a drink and reading a newspaper in Diego Rivera's backyard, a Soviet spy pretending to be a, um, uh, a farmer, a caretaker of the lands, is going to take a pickaxe 
and crush Trotsky in the back of the head. Trotsky will survive the initial blow, but he'll die from uh, brain swelling in the next couple of days. The reason why that story is important is that it tells us and shows us how far Stalin is willing to go to eliminate people who might be a potential threat to his power. Stalin realized that Trotsky truly was the brains of the operation when it comes to the Russian Revolution. And the only way Stalin was able to pull off that victory was through his cunningness and his kind of street smart, street smarts mentality. Uh, if you look at the next slide, it says Stalin in power. Uh, Stalin is going to rule pretty much the, the head of the Soviet state all the way through from 24 to 34. Uh, and in 1934, um, it looks like his days are done. There is another man, uh, part of the Communist Party, who's much younger than Joseph Stalin. Good-looking guy. His name is Sergei Kirov. And Sergei, young, energetic, seems to be pushing the Communist Party and Communist Russia in a different direction. Uh, maybe it's time to change. You know, it's been 11 years of Stalin staying in power. It could be potentially a time to uh, to move on. And Stalin in 1934 at the 1934 Party Congress, this is where the, the vote went down to see who was going to continue to run the Communist Party. Kirov won and Stalin lost. And Stalin at this time now realizes that his days are over. Uh, at least he realized that and then did something about it. So he began in 1934 what is known as the Great Purge. Purges to get rid of. So when we're talking about purging, we're talking about massacring or murdering or getting rid of anybody that Stalin considers to be a political or powerful opposition to Stalin remaining or maintaining his power. Uh, Kirov uh, one day was walking out of his apartment complex uh, and got shot in the back a couple of times. It went down in the newspapers as a, a robbery gone wrong. Somebody was trying to take his wallet. However, when the body was uh, discovered, the wallet was still on Kirov. And it starts to kind of signal a message that Stalin is out there to get revenge for all these men who were pushing him out of power. Stalin will kill off um, army heads, four-star, three-star generals, sometimes two-star generals. Um, some of them are shot and killed. Some of them disappear. Some of them are sent to the gulags. Gulags are work camps out in the middle of Siberia. Will they be worked to death? Um, to the point where in 1941, when Adolf Hitler invades the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa, the Communist Party are going to send members back out to the gulags to see if there are any three-star or four-star generals left. Uh, the, the army was so decimated with its high leadership that when the Nazis invaded, they don't have a strong, experienced a set of generals or major generals that could actually go to war and go to war well against the Nazis. So they'll invite and ask many of these former generals to come back, put their uniforms on, fight against the Nazis and be successful. And they will be successful. In 1945, the Nazis are defeated, mostly at the hands of, of uh, Russia. And then once the war is over and the celebrations are done, many of those four-star generals who survived the first purge are thrown back into the gulags where they came from. Stalin is also going to kill some of his uh, his friends uh, during this time period. If you were close with Stalin, oftentimes you became a target. If you distanced yourself from Stalin, thinking that you would be saved that way, you were killed. Uh, it's one of those things that people didn't know how close to get, how far to get. You went into an embrace, and I, I don't mean that literally embrace, but to embrace Stalin and try to be as close as possible to save your life, and he might think that you're trying to get close because he wants to backstab you or something like that. He's trying to take advantage of you. If you stepped away from him, 
you know, he might ask, well, why are you distancing yourself from me? So you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, there's no way in, no way out. It's, it's, um, if it's your time, it's your time, regardless of what you're trying to do to survive. Uh, Stalin even ends up killing uh, his own wife. Uh, on his wife, I believe it is his first wife, uh, suffered from bipolarism. Um, but as information started to leak out and she started to understand how much of a murderer her husband was, she had a very difficult time with it, staying, trying to stay sane with the knowledge that her husband just slaughtered. Russian people, people disappearing left and right. So one evening while they were at a dinner party at their house, they invited many communist officials over to their house. Um, Stalin was smoking his cigarettes. And when he was done, he was flicking the cigarette butts at his wife who was at the table and seemed really out of it. So one too many cigarette butts being flicked her way. She stood up and she started to yell at her husband in front of all the other communist party members told him what a horrible man he was and what a murderer he was, and then stormed off to her bedroom. Stalin stood there, stoic, stony-faced, or stone-faced, and didn't say anything. The evening went on. They all ate. They had fun. And then when it was time for everyone to go home, Stalin said goodnight to his party guests. He went upstairs to his bedroom. A shot rang out. Stalin's own police guard went in, fearing that it was Stalin who had been shot. And when they ran in their same face, you know, kind of dead face, Stalin turns to his guards and says, my wife is dead. She killed herself and simply walks out of the room, no emotion. The guards call a coroner. The coroner comes in and he's going to inspect the body and inspecting the body, of course, taking care of it. The coroner also has to file the, the reasoning behind the death, right? What caused cause of death? And so the coroner realizes that the body is laying in a position that does not signify suicide. Uh, the body is face down, and it seems to be that the entry wound of the bullet is on Stalin's wife's right temple. However, the gun is placed in the left hand of Stalin's wife. So if you can imagine standing up and taking your left hand and, and pointing, let's say an imaginary gun at your right temple and putting a bullet through your right temple with your left hand, that physically, that just doesn't make sense on who would do something like that to have to turn their body, their head towards their, their left shoulder uh, to kill themselves. You would think left hand to left temple, right hand to right temple. And so the coroner analyzed the body, analyzed the position of the gun, the position of the entry wound into the head and told the people that were there, this, this wasn't suicide. This is murder. This woman was murdered until one of the guards walked up to him and said, it was suicide and you're going to write it down as suicide. And at that point, the coroner realized perhaps what was going on. And so the coroner wrote it in as suicide. His official paperwork was done, but the coroner knew too much. And days later, the coroner went disappearing. So anybody who had any uh, knowledge of, uh, of nastiness going on. Oftentimes they also were dealt with and disappeared. On one occasion, Stalin was giving a speech at the Politburo uh, and Stalin was being a jerk at times during his speeches. He would walk in to the Politburo and as long as he remained standing, you were supposed to applaud him and clap for him. He was supposed to be the first person who sat down, not anyone else. So Stalin used to play with his, <laughs> his communist friends and, uh, 
he would stand up there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and people would applaud and applaud and applaud. People were afraid that if they sat down first, they stopped applauding, that they would be the next one that would be targeted. And on one occasion, a, a man who was in eyesight of Joseph Stalin decided he had had enough. He wasn't going to continue to applaud and he was tired. He was going to sit down and he did. Stalin nodded his head in his direction saying, oh, I see you. You just sat down. And so Stalin then sat down and they went through the speeches and had their party meeting. And the next day, that man who sat down disappeared. You go on to the, the next slide, changes in industry. A couple of things that, uh, that Stalin does um, that definitely are a benefit to uh, Russia outside of the, uh, you know, the, the, the horrors and the terror that takes place in the, the Great Purge is industry. One of the terms that have oftentimes haunted the Russian people is the term backwardness, that Russia is always some sort of a backwards country, and that if Stalin is, if uh, Russia is to uh, modernize, that they need to do so in a fashion that gets rid of this backwardness. And so in industry, Stalin is going to launch his five-year plan. This is a five-year plan to try to increase output of electricity, steel production, coal, and oil, so they can match up with the West. They could be just as successful as the West. So many people are pushed into industry, into factories and production of steel and, and oil that they're taken out of factories and taken off the farms that are producing common goods for people. So food, housing, uh, household appliances, clothing, basic necessities. And what ends up happening is, yes, Russia makes big leaps when it comes to industry. However, they start to have a huge detriment and a huge cutback in food production. And Russia is going to go through a famine in the years of the, especially the fourth and fifth year of the five-year plan as food production was not equal to population. Seeing that Stalin had messed up, you know, successful in industry, but messed up in not producing enough for the average people as far as food and common items, he decided to launch his second five-year plan, which was in agriculture. And so if you look at the next slide, changes in agriculture, um, in order to make up for all the food that was not available uh, just three or four years ago, Stalin is going to do the five-year plan, second five-year plan, by taking over 25 million private-owned farms. Uh, they're going to take those and make them into these massive, huge communal, or what are known as collective farms. So if we're talking about collectivization, you're talking about a communal farm where everybody works together. Everyone farms. Everybody has communal or collective showers. Everybody has communal or collective bedrooms. The children of those workers are going to have communal education or collective education. Everybody sleeps together, showers together, eats together, and works together. And their one job here on these farms is simply that being a farmer and making food for Russia. There is one group that stands out against Stalin. They're known as the Kulaks. They're a group of peasant farmers uh, from the Ukraine. Um, this group of farmers, the one thing they have going for them is simply the fact that they own their property. And they've owned their property for over 300 years in the Ukraine. So when Communist Party members come in and tell the Kulaks that their farms are no longer theirs, they're going to become part of the state, that they have to surrender their farms, those par uh, party members are oftentimes met with stone throwing, um, adults and children. There's some video clips of kids with sticks going up and pouncing on and beating uh, some of the communist members and telling them to get off their lands. Well, we've already seen what happened, uh, what happened to party members, communist party members who went against Stalin. They disappeared or trying to get close to him during the Great Purge. They were all killed. 
Well, Stalin's not going to want to deal with the Kulaks, and so he is going to cut off all the water to their farms. He's going to seize their crops, and eventually that's going to lead the Kulaks to starvation and famine. Um, they will attempt to eat their whatever crops were left. They will attempt to eventually eat their horses and eat their animals. And once that's done, there's no food or water left for them. So anywhere between 5 to 10 million Kulaks were killed in this period of time. If you look at the next slide, you're going to notice some of the newspaper uh, articles from the United States. The next slide shows us 6 million perish in Soviet famine. Peasant crops seized, they and their animals starve. Even the next slide shows you even more of the deliberate starvation of peasants. Villages depopulated by hunger in Ukraine as Soviets punish their opponents. Continuing on in the slides, you see you know, the death of these children. I mean, some of these images even look like they might come from some sort of a concentration camp from World War II. The last set of picture, uh, the last picture you should see is a set of children. Uh, one of the things to note about these children, once again, is that they are peasants. They literally have nothing but rags on them as far as ownership and the house behind them. Other than that, the only thing they have going for themselves is the fact that at one point they owned land, and that meant that they had some sort of survival. But outside the land, they have no real wealth. If you go to the next slide, it says the death total from the Great Purges and the Kulaks. So of the Great Purge, you're looking at anywhere between 8 to 13 million, and for the Kulaks, anywhere between 5 to 10 million. So as a total, 13 to 23 million Russians killed at the hands of Stalin, and that's before the arrival of World War II in 1939. Um, notice the discrepancy, however. Here we are, 13 to 23 million. That's a big difference. Right? Why the discrepancy? Why the big difference? And it comes down to record keeping. When the communists came into power, one of the first things that they started to do was just destroy churches. Communism promoted atheism and churches promoted worship of, of God. You cannot have a state, an all-powerful totalitarian state, worshiping two gods. So one of them has to go. So the churches were burnt down, but the records that those churches kept were important as well. Because whereas today, if we want to find out population records, we want to find out, let's say, information about our ancestors, we might go to a city hall. And they might actually have the birth records that come from hospitals of the children that were born from point A to point B, whatever the time period is. Back in the day, your birth wasn't registered by the city. It was registered by the church when you were baptized into the church. That was your birth date. Right? When you became a member of the church, so not necessarily when you were actually born from, through your mother or by your mother, uh, but when you became a member of the church. So you might be off by a year or two, whatever the case might be. Uh, but with those records burning with the churches, we don't know the populations that lived in the area before and after. We have no, we have no way of saying there was you know, 500,000 people because the records tell us that there were 500,000 people who lived in this area and now there's only you know 3,000 that live in the area, so we can kind of make that determination. This is how many were actually killed. We weren't sure or are not sure what the numbers were before the Stalinist period. Uh, the next image or our next uh, slide is going to show you um, an explanation of altered photos. This is one of the things that the, um, the Soviets did to get rid of any enemies of the state, the enemies of the people. Um, they were killed. 
But oftentimes, because these were people that were close to Stalin, they were oftentimes photographed with Stalin. There is a, a great book called The Commissar Vanishes. Uh, it's a book that was printed really low in English, but uh, a lot of copies were done in Russia. And it exposes a lot of these same images you're going to see in a moment where it shows you the very first photograph, the one that was used that has everybody in it. And then slowly as Stalin started to purge off his enemies, uh, artists were brought in and commissioned or paid to paint over those men or women or children who had disappeared to almost be as if they were erasing them from history. So if you look at the next photo, there you see Joseph Stalin wearing his hat. There, there's a man on his left-hand side. It looks like they're walking next to some sort of body of water or a river or a stream. Behind him, you see Molotov, who's the Secretary of State, who is one of Stalin's closest friends and will survive the Great Purges and actually survive Stalin himself. If you go to the next image, you're going to notice it's basically the same photo. However, the man standing next to Stalin's left apparently got pushed into the water or went for a dive. There he is one moment, and there he's gone the next. Uh, the next image, right smack dab in the center, it shows you uh, Lenin. Next to Lenin, to Lenin's left, who's giving the kind of military salute uh, on his hat, that is Leon Trotsky. Right? Trotsky being now Stalin's enemy, eventually, like I said, moving to Mexico. Uh, the next image, you'll notice Trotsky's missing, as well as a couple, couple other people. There's a, a guy who has a really thick beard, uh, over the shoulder, over Lenin's right-hand shoulder. And you're going to notice also a guy um, next underneath or right next to the little boy next to Lenin, who's also going to be disappearing as well. And as well as there's another guy who's actually right behind uh, Lenin, Lenin's left shoulder between Lenin and Trotsky. He's also gone as well. And so these are all guys who were friendly with, at one time probably really close friends uh, with Joseph Stalin. And they are now gone. They've disappeared. They've been killed or sent to a gulag or kicked out of the country. But notice that in these images, Lenin, Lenin is kept. Lenin is sacrosanct, meaning that he is sacred. Uh, even today in Russia, Lenin is the man. He's the George Washington, the Abraham Lincoln of his people. Uh, the Russians admire him and love him for what he did for the Russian people. So if, if Stalin was to get rid of the pictures of Lenin as well, and that might send a, an awkward message that even Lenin was was nasty or, or bad. And you know, that there has to be somebody that is kept behind for the communist state. The next image shows Lenin on top of a platform as he's giving a speech. <coughs> Excuse me. You can notice there's a staircase going up on the right-hand side. The man who's facing the camera on that staircase, that is Leon Trotsky. And next to Trotsky, there's a little boy who has his head actually turned away from us. He's looking in the opposite direction of Leon Trotsky. And when you go to the next picture, uh, the position has changed slightly. But it's during the same time. Some bodies have moved. It's from the same time. Maybe the cameraman has come down a, a bit or has slid to a different position. And you notice that Trotsky is no longer there. The artist has come in and painted over Trotsky. It made it seem like there is just a staircase. You can still see the little boy. Uh, the back of the boy in his head, but the two men, including Trotsky, have vanished. Uh, the next picture is a picture that was on Pravda, uh, a, a newspaper book that was uh, trying to talk about the history of the communist revolution and trying to show the faces of the most important leaders of the communist revolution. And of course, Trotsky, being Lenin's right-hand man, was shown in that book. Uh, 
Um, if you owned that book, if you had it in your own personal library, you were supposed to go in and get rid of Trotsky's face. You might take a pin, you might take a nail or something and actually scratch out his face. Uh, if you were found with that book and you had not scratched out his face or not known that you were supposed to scratch out his face, that could be trouble. You could eventually be arrested and maybe thrown into a gulag. Uh, the next um, slide, you're going to see a little girl that's being held by Joseph Stalin. This is a, a little sense of propaganda that really worked well for Joseph Stalin, trying to show that he is a father of his people. Uh, the little girl is a Burat girl. She comes from uh, the Mongolian area of, of Russia and central, uh, central Russia. Her name is Ingelsina Markizova. And, uh, I think they called her Gelsa uh, growing up. But uh, this little girl became an opportunity for the Russians to photograph her with Stalin. Um, at one time, she was brought in from uh, these children were brought in from all the different states in Russia. And she had a bouquet of flowers and she was walking in front of Stalin in a parade. Um, she broke file and ran to Stalin and gave Stalin the bouquet of flowers. And Stalin picked her up and it became an iconic image that was caught and then the propaganda ministers said, well, let's keep rolling with it. Let's see if we can continue to have just a propaganda campaign trying to show Uncle Joseph Stalin as being a great man, being a great grandfather. So as the story goes, uh, Ingelsina is going to be asked, her parents are going to be asked, if Joseph Stalin and the government could take her on a tour. And the two of them could tour across Russia, taking photographs, propaganda campaign. And the parents originally said yes. And then the father started asking questions. A couple weeks went by and he started asking the question, well, where's, where's our daughter? Uh, when is our daughter going to come back to us? Do we have any information about when our daughter is going to return? And then a month went by and still no answers. And apparently the, the parents were pestering the Communist Party and a fictitious uh, piece of information was leaked that Ngasina's father was a Japanese spy. And he was arrested in 1934, 1935, and he was eventually killed um, because he was made out to be um, a Japanese spy. Um, eventually, the mother, uh, her mother and Ngocina's mother, it was eventually arrested on the charge that she was using her daughter's uh, publicly known image to gain favor with Stalin. And so the mother was thrown into a gulag, and eventually there was an accident at the gulag and the mother was killed, although there's official transcripts that have a penciled in word in like a red pen that says eliminate next to her name. And so there's a good possibility that Ngocina's mother was also killed and it wasn't an accident. Um, if you go through the pictures, the last picture there, you see Ngocina as a uh, woman in 1989. Uh, behind her is one of the propaganda statues that was made um, as the parents were killed and El Ngocina uh, became an enemy of the state because uh, they, I guess they stopped using her propaganda or felt that her story might um, might not be convincing anymore. Um, they pretty much made her out to be an enemy of the state. They didn't kill her, but they changed her name. Uh, they changed who she was. Uh, the little girl was no longer Elgelsina. They named her something else and said it was a different girl from a different part of Russia and hoping that that would be enough to convince the Russian people that uh, it was not the same, not the same woman. Uh, but that picture that you see in 1989, above the image of Stalin holding her as a uh, child, the uh, the statue, it says, friend of children and murderer of their parents. 
And so this was a campaign in 1989 as Ngocina toured um, trying to expose Stalin as the murderer that he was. Uh, the next image that you're going to see, oh, I, I should also note that the the man who snapped the pictures of Angosina when she was a little girl in Stalin's arms got 17 years in prison for taking too many pictures. Uh, the next image you're going to see is a propaganda poster, and it shows Joseph Stalin, and it has some military men in front of him, some children and women holding up flowers, and some army officials looking up at Stalin. Notice that two of the images are cut out. Those are some of the generals who were eliminated. Maybe Stalin didn't have a liking for them or they were too powerful. Even the guy who made the poster was also thrown in a gulag. And as you go through the, the remaining pictures for Joseph Stalin, you're going to see uh, one image that shows Stalin in the middle and three men around him. Uh, if you go down, it seems to be a pretty easy editing job by slicing off the man who is at Stalin's right-hand side. Next to Stalin, there you have Kirov. Kirov was the man who in 1934 had won the 34 election. He got eliminated. And next to Kirov is going to be the, the longest-lasting friend of Joseph Stalin, and that's going to be Molotov, the uh, Secretary of State. And eventually, you eliminate one by one until, if you go down the next slide, until there's just Joseph Stalin. He's the only man who has total control of the state. The next image you're going to see is Joseph Stalin laying in state. Um, he dies in 1953. Um, this is a wondrous death for many people because now the boogeyman is gone, or at least seems to be that way. Stalin had such a, a terrorist uh, cloud placed over the Russian people that even upon his death, people were unsure if things were going to change and if life could improve. Uh, the people that you see that are there, apparently standing next to Stalin's, uh, Stalin's body, those are actually cutouts. Um, those people, some of them didn't show up, some of them did show up, uh, but the people who made the newspaper um, actually pasted them in that order to make it seem that they were there to see Stalin's body. Um, when Stalin does die, he is going to be placed, if you go to the next slide, he's going to be placed next to uh, Lenin in the mausoleum. And then eventually during the 1950s, during a period known as de-Stalinization, one of the next leaders of the Soviet Union, his name is um, um, Khrushchev. Uh, Khrushchev is going to expose Stalin as what he was, a murderer of his own people. Russia will become de-Stalinized, meaning they're going to get rid of the memory of Stalin. They're going to take down all of his statues, and his body will be removed from Lenin's mausoleum and placed outside the Kremlin walls. And the picture on the right-hand side shows the statue of Stalin. That is the only official statue that is currently in Russia today. Um, but the difference between Stalin's statue and the other statues that are along that wall is that Stalin's statue is white, and white in Russia is the color of shame. Uh, Stalin in 1953, as he was getting ready to go to bed, suffered a, um, a stroke. Um, he had just closed the door to his bedroom. He was walking towards his bathroom when he uh, in gate when the stroke hit him. He hit the floor, and according to doctors, um, the stroke that he died from must have felt like thousands of knives that were piercing his body. Um, he will urinate himself and he will lay down on the ground, slowly dying for the next hours. Um, we're talking about late at night till six o'clock in the morning. Usually, ready by six, Stalin is up. And when six o'clock rolls around, the guards that are outside of Stalin's doors 
are too scared to knock on the door and too scared to open the door to see if Stalin's okay until this uh, large matrushka Russian woman who was kind of the caretaker and the uh, uh, the woman who would make the beds, and the maid of uh, Stalin's area, his, his house, said, what are you doing here? Something has to be wrong. Stalin's not coming out. And the guard said, we're not knocking on that door. So she went in, she opened the door, and they found him still alive, but uh, dying on the verge of death uh, in his bathroom floor. Okay, we're going to pause right here, and then we will continue on with totalitarianism, with fascism, and Nazism. Moving on to totalitarianism by way of fascism and Nazism. If you guys look at the next slide, uh, there is a quote there that comes from a... Um, an author. Uh, his name is Robert Paxton. Um, this author in the early 2000s wrote a book called The Anatomy of Fascism. And in that book, he, um, he was attempting in his thesis or in his intro, he was attempting to come up with a definition for fascism. And so his thesis statement, when he finally gets to a point in his book, which is towards the very last chapter, um, he says that what fascism is, is what fascism is not. And if you're looking at that statement and you think, well, what the heck does that mean? Yeah, that's exactly it. What fascism is, is what fascism is not. Now, Robert Paxton, when he was a young student in high school, um, he did a project on fascism, trying to figure out the definition. And when he looked at the definition in a, a textbook, it was different from the definition that he got in a uh, dictionary. And so that led him to a college level text. And when he looked up the definition in a college level text, he got a third interpretation of it. And so it kind of weirded him out uh, asking the question, what exactly is fascism? There seems to be different explanations of it. And so his book was uh, chapter by chapter, an analysis of the different fascist states that have existed um, in Spain during Francisco Franco's uh, reign in Italy during Mussolini's time, and then Perón in Argentina. Those are usually the three largest fascist states. And of course, Nazism is German fascism. So the Nazis uh, had a section in the textbook as well. And then one, uh, two or three chapters were on fringe governments and um, fascist style governments within Croatia, France, even England had a fascist um, party uh, that attempted to win seats in parliament. And what his end result is here is to explain that what fascism is, is what it's not. It's a contradiction. In certain fascist states, you have one definition, but in others, you don't have that same definition. So what he comes to a uh, conclusion here is that it all depends on where you're at when you define fascism, because fascism in Italy is going to be different slightly, some similarities, but different slightly than then what Francisco Franco had in Spain, or what Perón had in Argentina, or what was uh, a main idea in Nazi Germany. They're, they will share similarities, but there's also extreme, sometimes very extreme differences. If we turn to the next uh, um, slide, there's the definition for fascism. And this is once again, one of many definitions, but this is one that I like to use. A political movement that promotes an extreme form of nationalism, a denial of individual rights, and a dictatorial one-party rule. So that means that it is a form of nationalism, extreme form of nationalism. That means that only the nation is important. Whatever happens outside the nation is not important. 
uh, a denial of, a denial of individual rights. So liberals, if we're talking about liberalism, the, the ones who are the remnants of the enlightened thinkers, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, those types of individual rights are going to be clamped down upon and fascism is going to say no to liberalism. And then a dictatorial one-party rule. So one party is going to rule the fascist party. There will not be multi-party systems. And there has to be a one-ruler dictator uh, in, that, uh, in that government. You're going to have different types. You'll have, like I said before, Italian, German, Spanish, Argentinian. And the name comes from the fascio which is the Roman symbol of, of power. Um, and if you look at the next slide, you're going to see a picture of what the Romans envisioned the fascio to look like. It is a set of rods that are tightly bound together. And there's always some sort of a knife or axe that is attached to it. Um, the idea here is that the rods are bound together or unified or power is kept over those rods and that the axe is kind of the power that or the, the symbol of power that helps to unify and tighten the union or the bond between people. If you look at the next slide, this is not a, a symbol that is nowhere to be seen here in the United States, or is a symbol that is just synonymous with fascism in Europe. And the next slide shows you Abraham Lincoln. Underneath Abraham Lincoln's arms at the Lincoln Memorial are two fasci, uh, fasci that uh, are underneath his hands because he was the leader of the United States. He's the president. He held power, and there he is holding power underneath his hands. In the next image, uh, this is one that comes from the House of Representatives here in the United States. You notice the American flag back there. But behind the Speaker of the House, you have the two fasci on, on either side. Um, this was mind-blowing to me years ago when I was a teenager. When I first saw this, you know, I'm enjoying World War II history and some of the symbolism, uh, of course, the swastika and, and the fascio. And then seeing this and going, holy crud. I mean, this, this is pretty pretty crazy um, that we would have a symbol like this. But once again, much like the swastika, the swastika existed before the Nazis um, took it and changed the meaning behind it. And even this symbol had existed from way before the fascists, the Italian fascists took it and then changed or altered the meaning behind it or added their own meaning to it. Uh, the, the next slide shows you two images from not too far away from Whittier High School. Here we are in Anaheim, California. Those are at Disneyland, right in front of the Matterhorn. And so you have even symbols uh, in uh, popular culture in, in uh, Anaheim, California, Disneyland that shows the fascio. If we move on to the next slide, the next slide is going to show you uh, some similarities and differences between fascism and communism, because here we are talking about potentially three totalitarian states but it's important to note that one uh, is a communist system and the other two are fascist systems. And so in, in saying that it's totalitarian, that would be the umbrella idea that covers all three of these. However, communism is on the far left. It is a workers revolution. Fascism is on the far right. They're a revolution for the middle class. And so on one side and left-hand side, let's look at the similarities. Both fascism and communism have a dictator. Both have no individual rights. Both believe that the state is supreme, that there is nothing higher than the state or the men who run the state. And neither practice democracy. No individual rights, no liberalism, no democracy. However, there are also differences. Because you might say, well, if they're similar, 
why do fascists and communists not get along? And they don't get along because they're on complete opposite ends of the political and economic spectrum. So differences. Fascists believe in class society, that there is a rich, a middle, a working, and a poor class. And they are absolutely fine, fine with keeping that class structure. Whereas communism believes in a classless society, right? According to Karl Marx, once the working class um, comes to realize their power, they'll overthrow the middle class, kill them off, take their wealth, and hand out that wealth or distribute it equally to everyone. So in the end, if you take away all the classes and there's just the working class that's left, there's only one class, which means there's really no class. There's just one common set of people, not different gradations in society. Second bullet point, fascists get their support from the rich and from the middle class, whereas communists get their support from the workers and the working class. Fascism is ultra-nationalistic, which means they promote nationalism. Whatever is inside the state is most important. Communism, however, is internationalist, meaning that communism is to be uh, spread around the world and that workers, regardless of your national background or where you were born, see themselves, see the working class as most important, not the nationality of that person. So workers in Mexico, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Italy, in China, in Japan, and all the rest of the world, that is the connection that makes them important. Whereas the fascists would say, no, the only thing that makes you important is where you're born. So if you're an Italian, you have to be Italian in order to be important. If you're German, you have to be German in order to be uh, important or U.S. or Mexico, whatever the case might be within your nation. Some additional thoughts on fascist nationalism. Uh, all public thoughts and actions were to be for the benefit and glorification of the state and the nation. So all thoughts, all movement, all action is simply for the glory of the state. Fascism usually promotes the myth of the nation. And we're talking about myths. We're not talking about truths here. So oftentimes these are invented um, historical or invented history to promote the belief that Nazism or fascism is important. Um, one myth would be, let's say, if we're looking at it from a German perspective, that the Germans are Aryans and that the uh, Aryan people uh, lived and and occupied Germany centuries ago. Well, that's a myth. It's it's not it's not true. The Aryans were migratory people, but they came from northern parts of India and they never settled as far as Germany. So even the term to call them Aryan is a, is a fictitious term. But what the Nazis would do is they would go into areas like the Black Forest. They would take old uh, vases or vases. They would carve a swastika in on it, which was supposed to be the symbol of the Aryan people. They would dig holes and throw these uh, old vases in the holes. And eventually anthropologists, people who study culture and archaeologists would come out and they'd be told by these Nazi goons, hey, listen, in the Black Forest in Germany, that's where the first Aryans, that's where the first Aryans lived. And so the archaeologists would come out, they would start digging and find vases, and they'd say, ah, oh, yeah, look, yeah, das ist the first vase of the Aryan people, yeah. Oh, they have the swastika, the Heukenkreierkreuz. Yeah, they are Nazis, the first Germans were Nazis, and make a myth of it. And people believed it. It was all part of the, the propaganda. It was part of the show. Uh, that the fascists created to try to influence the people to believe that fascism or Nazism was important, that it was historically important. Um, the state comes first. Uh, if we're looking at it from the perspective of the people, uh, they are supposed to give everything to the state. So myth, if we're looking at what 
children's value and worth is. Well, children are very important for the fascist state and for Nazis because they're the next generation. If the fascists can propagandize and indoctrinate the youth, and this is also true of even uh, communism, if you can indoctrinate the youth, when they grow up, you're going to have them forever. Right? They're going to believe you, that perspective. The old people, however, the old people are irrelevant because the old people could judge what life was like before fascism arrived in Italy and Germany. They can uh, view and analyze what life was like before Stalin arrived, and they can make a determination if that life was better or worse. So for the old people, they could be eliminated. They can die off and the state doesn't care. As long as they focus on the children, eventually the, the children will grow up. And once they get older, they might not. Maybe the state doesn't care about those old people who were once children. Everything is for work. Everything is for the glory of the state. Your blood, the myth of blood, that it had to be pure. If you're talking about Nazi Germany and they had in 1935, they passed blood laws saying the only Germans were the ones that were uncorrupted blood, had pure Aryan blood. Um, women, um, if you're looking at the even the image of women, uh, women were simply to create babies, uh, both in fascist Germany, uh, sorry, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Women were given medals on the amount of children for the amount of children they they created. Um, it's almost as if the state held or had legal pro um, property rights over your sexual organs. That any time, this is true of Nazi Germany, any time you engaged in sex. If it wasn't between a man and a woman, if it was between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, that that could not create a child. Sex had to be between a man and a woman because there had to be the opportunity to give the state a child that eventually would grow up to be either a mother and make more children or a father who would go on and fight in the war or potentially become a part of a Nazi member and fight uh, for Hitler. Same thing was true um, in, in Italy. In, in Italy, you were given a... Um, medal and that medal for every child you had, a ribbon was placed upon it. But in Nazi Germany, they painted it off in different colors. You had a gold medal. If you know, if you had more than eight children or seven children, if you had four to six children, you got a silver and you had upwards of four children, you got a bronze medal. So they made it into a competition. So you could walk around with the Mutterkreuz or the mother cross on and you could say, yeah, look at me. Yeah, I am the best mother in, in Germany. Yeah. And you can show off and, and show your rival women how important you were. Um, we're going to jump down for a, a couple of slides where it says a fascist government, totalitarian dictatorship, uh, creates a cult of leadership. Um, the idea here for, for men specifically was to show uh, that the ruler was um, masculine, ultra machismo, uh, but also the people that fall, fell in line, especially the men also uh, followed with that point. Looking at the next slide, here we have a question. Why was fascism able to rise in Italy after World War I? And this really deals with the disappointment of Italy at the Treaty of Versailles. Remember that the Treaty of Versailles, France had promised Italy that Italy was going to gain a huge amount of territory at the expense of Austria and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire once Austria was defeated. However, because France was afraid that they would be creating a second massive Austrian-Hungarian or Italian, let's say Italian government that owned non-Italians, that it would just be as bad as if the Austrians had owned it. And so France rescinded on their promise and Italy only got three pieces of territory versus the large one that they were uh, promised. So there's disappointment there. Uh, in the 1920s, Italy is going to be hit with rising inflation and unemployment. And anytime you have people who are not working, that's going to lead to distress, people looking for answers. 
Uh, Democratic government seemed helpless to deal with the country's problems, even though Italy was a kingdom. Remember that they were a constitutional monarchy. And so perhaps these fascists that are looking to come into power would criticize the Constitution and say that the Constitution limits the government and limits the power of the government and limits the people and creates too much freedom that if we really want to move forward, and this is kind of awkward, but if you want to move forward in society, you have to limit the freedoms of people in order for the government to do what they need to do to get rid of these problems. And they wanted a leader who would take action. They felt that the king and the members of the Italian parliament were not successful enough. They needed somebody to take power. And that somebody is going to be the next man that you see there on the slide. His name is uh, Mussolini, Benito Mussolini. He's actually named after Benito Juarez. Uh, Benito Juarez being the old uh, uh, president of Mexico. I uh, believe Benito Mussolini's uh, father was a Senegalist and a, a socialist growing up, and he gave Benito uh, a lot of the names that oftentimes were associated with socialists around the world at that time. Um, he creates the Partito Nazionale Fascista in 1922, or the National Fascist Party in 1922, and a lot of what he does to rise to power really comes off of disappointment of World War I and the unemployment. And he seems to be somebody who's willing to take action. Um, but Mussolini even is a, is a complicated uh, character. As a young man, his father being a, a socialist, he was raised on socialism. Um, he was not really a, a great student. Um, he was a horrible writer. Even as, a, as an adult, he becomes an editor of the newspaper. Um, and being an editor of the newspaper, you, you sure as heck better be good at your editing. Not, not that great maybe as a student. Uh, he got kicked out of high school because he stabbed his history teacher. Don't think about it, kids. Uh, he uh, in, in Italy and in a lot of parts of the world, when you have to respond to a question, your teachers will ask you to stand up and you have to respond standing in class. And so the teacher knew, the professor knew that uh, Mussolini was not a good reader and not a, a good student that would do his homework. And so the teacher decided that he was going to expose Mussolini. So he told Mussolini to stand up and he said, Mussolini, we all know that you did your work last night. And so if you can please tell us what was the main idea that the author was talking about, whatever you know, part of the reading that they had. And Benito kind of stumbled over his words trying to figure out, uh, you know, so, oh, well, he, he was talking about. Anyways, the professor made him out to be a clown and started mocking Mussolini and started telling all the students, oh, Benito, everyone knows you don't do your work. I don't even know why you try. And the teacher went up and pushed Benito in the chest with his finger, and Benito, who had a pencil in his hand, couldn't take it anymore and decided to lift up his pencil and stab his teacher in the chest. Uh, needless to say, Benito was kicked out of school at that point. Um, but eventually he finds, I guess, a, a part in, in education and eventually becomes this leader of the uh, socialist newspaper and editor of the socialist newspaper. But in 1914, when war breaks out in the first world war, and eventually Italy during the war in 1915, there's a calling for Benito Mussolini and it's a calling to join the war. <coughs> Excuse me. A lot of the Italian socialists, many of the Italian socialists or communists or socialists in general stood against the war. They said that the war was simply a way for the rich to profit, and the only men that were going out there to fight were from the working class. And so all socialists should stay away from the war. But Benito found a, a national consciousness or a, his nationalism um, was brought up, and he decided he was going to fight. 
And when eventually he did come back after the war, he was kicked out of the Socialist Party. They didn't want him. They thought he was a traitor. So he decided to make his own brand of socialism, but he called it fascism. So and there's the picture of Mussolini as uh, the next picture, a balding man with a uh, piercing, piercing gaze. Uh, the next image, you're going to see Mussolini walking with men. They're all carrying um, um, black flags and they're wearing black shirts. Um, the black shirts are Mussolini's main supporters. Uh, they're known as the Camicineri. Uh, and this is the March on Rome. Um, Mussolini is going to take his men. And in uh, the 1920s, 1922, I believe, he is going to march on Rome and he is going to tell um, Victor Emmanuel II or Victor Emanuele III, excuse me, that if Victor Emanuele III does not give Mussolini power, if he does not give power over to the fascists and create a new government, that his 30,000 goons, these guys in these pictures who are waiting outside in Rome, are going to burn down the capital. And that left the king with a decision to make. Do I listen to Mussolini? Maybe he is the best guy for the job. Maybe he is the only one that uh, might be able to take care of unemployment rates and get Italians back to work? Or do I call the military in and open fire on these 30,000 guys and disperse them and put down this um, overthrow of power? And the king was looking out for his own family and his own ascendancy rights. And so he gave over power to Mussolini, simply handed over power and told Mussolini, can I remain king? And so Mussolini is head of government. The king remains kind of a puppet where you know he'll go to parades and wave his hand. Uh, he'll be seen as the ultimate symbol of Italy, but Mussolini is really the one who is the controller, the man who's pulling the, the strings or the reins of the operation. The next picture shows you some of the images of Mussolini, always dressed in some sort of military garb. Uh, these The black shirts are paramilitary men. We had talked about paramilitary in some of the readings that we had in this chapter uh, during the Age of Anxiety on why many Germans wanted to belong. World War I veterans wanted to continue with this paramilitary group because the same men here that are standing right behind Mussolini, a lot of them were World War I vets and they fell in love with or had a connection with what they saw on the battlefield and the men that they fought with. And they want that style of life to continue because the other style of life, they're not used to it. They're not used to being a regular person getting up and putting on a suit and going to work and, and having a regular life. Their regular life ended the moment they saw the first violence on the battlefields of World War I. Uh, the next image shows you what Mussolini promised the Italian people. He wanted to revive the economy, rebuild the armed forces. He was going to give Italy strong leadership. And one of his biggest things that he kept harping on was this idea that he was going to restore Italy to great glory. Um, there is an old joke that goes on in uh, in Italy. Um, there's this um, one day while Mussolini is on this huge, on this massive veranda in Rome, and there's these hundreds of thousands of Italians that are cheering his name. They're yelling at him and calling him, El Duce, El Duce, our leader, our leader. He goes out there with this big grin on his face and he says, people of Italy, do you see what I've given you? I've given you food. I've given you jobs. Uh, Italy is great again. And there's a little kid in the middle of the crowd that says, Mussolini, I could buy you for a dollar. Well, what that means is that Mussolini is cheap. He has no moral or ethical values. If you want him to change the law or do something illegal, that's all you got to do is just pay him off. Mussolini hears this guy, this little boy, cry out, gets upset, goes back into the uh, the building. The next day he comes out, 
same people are waiting for him and cheering for him. And he says, ah, people of Italy, do you see what I've given you? I've rebuilt the armed forces. The military is great. This little kid, same kid, cries out in the crowd and says, Mussolini, I could buy you for 50 cents. And the little you know, Mussolini has now been offended. Uh, the prices keep dropping on how cheap he is. And so Mussolini gets upset and he goes back inside. The third day he comes out and he tells his black shirt goons to walk amongst the crowd. There's this kid that's yelling that he can buy him for, for nothing. So the next time you hear uh, the little boy yell out, make sure you arrest him. And so he goes out the third day with a stupid smirk on his face and the people are all cheering for his douche. And Mussolini says one of his ridiculous phrases and the little boy yells out, Mussolini, I could buy you for a penny. And so the black shirts converge on this young man. And they arrest him. And they bring him into the the, uh, the palazzo, the building. But the kid, the kid's like 10 years old. What are you going to do to a 10-year-old kid? Are you going to murder a 10-year-old kid? No. So they end up bringing this young man's uh, father, who was a farmer from, from Rome. And this, this old man comes walking in. And he's kind of cowering under the auspicious size and greatness of Mussolini. And Mussolini's just upset. And he's walking back and forth. And he tells the old man, do you understand what your son is doing? He's going around. He's telling the people he can buy me for chump changes. This is intolerable. And the old man walks over to his son, slaps his son in the face and says, with the money I give you, you're going to go buy that? Moving on. Uh, once a uh, leader, uh, what steps did Mussolini take in consolidating his power? He abolished democracy. He outlawed all political parties except the fascist party. And that was something similar that, of course, the communists did. In Russia, right, Lenin got rid of all of the other parties and made just the Communist Party the only party. He had secret police jail his opponents. On one occasion, he um, eventually sent out goons to assassinate the leader uh, of the Communist Party. His name was last name was Matteotti. And when asked about it, Mussolini said something like, we got him, or something to the, to the feeling that Mussolini knew about it or had said that they should kill him. And when somebody caught him on it, he said, no, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Um, I'm just saying, you know, the time comes for everyone. Uh, and I think at that point, the Italians realized what type of government they were dealing with. And after the assassination of Matteotti, Mussolini is going to take some time off from the public eye because there is a big stink about how far the government has gone and how corrupt and how murderous the government has become in Italy. He censors radio stations and publications. He's going to outlaw strikes. Uh, and he controls the economy by allowing, uh, allying, uh, allying the fascists with the industrialists and, uh, industrialists and large landowners. Next slide shows you some propaganda. You see a young lady kissing one of the flags, the Italian flags that has the eagle and the fascio on it. The next slide, the larger, or the next picture, excuse me, the larger one shows the futuristic face, menacing face of Mussolini with the Italian word yes behind it. The idea is that every time you see Mussolini's face, you're supposed to say, si, si, almost like the si se puede, yes, we can type of thing. Or I don't know, maybe the question is, is Mussolini an idiot? Yes, yes. Is he horrible for the Italian people? Yes, yes. Whatever the question is, answer yes. And then this, the bottom picture, once again, tries to show Mussolini as being this futurist uh, appearance. The next one shows a couple propaganda posters. One shows Mussolini, uh, you notice a big round face and the word yes in front of him, but the, the body is made up of an image of Italian people and his body's been cut to that image, trying to represent that he is the embodiment of his people. The Italian people are Mussolini and they, uh, Mussolini is the Italian, the Italian people. 
And then the next picture shows the one from the Second World War with the word Londra or London uh, underneath a thumb that comes down that is supposed to be some sort of direction dating back or uh, a movement dating back to the Romans during the uh, times of the Colosseum and the gladiators that if there was a wounded gladiator that the victorious gladiator would look up and there'd be the emperor there that would either give the thumbs up or the thumbs down kill him or let him live we don't know if the thumbs up meant let him live the thumbs down meant kill him some people thought the thumbs up meant take out your sword and kill him some of them thought if you put your thumb in your fingers like in your four fingers then that meant put your your sword away we don't we don't know but in this case we're using the thumbs down as to get rid of london Next picture just shows you uh, a lot of these youth uh, groups of uh, the black shirts, the the gil or the commissionere that found a connection. They they there wasn't a lot of work, and so a lot of these boys thought that it was fun to run around with a knife on their side, beating up communists, and joining a political gang that made them feel like they were alive or they belonged. Uh, some of the next slides, or the next slide, just kind of gives you some of the uh, fascist sayings of the time period. And these are ridiculous, but once again, here we are basing a lot of this on machismo, and uh, this is a, an ancient way of of thinking. Really, first one says, "If I attack, follow me. If I retreat, kill me. If they kill me, avenge me." Uh, the second one says, "Menefrego," which means I don't care. Um, you know, yeah, usually the idea here in mythical um, stance of irrationality. In, in Italy, somebody might ask you, what's one plus one? And a rational thought would say two, right? One plus one equals two. Well, for a fascist, one plus one will equal three because we'll make it equal three because Italians and fascists are so great. They might say, ma che me ne frego, one plus one isn't two, I'll make it three, right? Like they're greater than even rational thought. Viva la morte, long live death. War is to man what motherhood is to women, trying to put these gender roles on men versus women. Molte nemici, molto onore, many enemies, much honor. And the last one, tutto nello Stato, niente al di fuori dello Stato, nulla contro lo Stato. Everything in the state, nothing outside of the state, and nothing against the state. Moving on to Nazi Germany. There you see in the next slide, the union between Italy and Germany in the Second World War. The man with a hand up in the air, and that is going to be Mussolini and right next to him, Adolf Hitler, and both of them uh, during the same period that they met, I believe, um, in a car and going towards the uh, the event or an event. If we go down the next slide, uh, German fascism is known as Nazism. Um, there is a picture of Adolf Hitler with some of his goons in the background. Those are the brown shirts. Um, it's almost as if every fascist group had a color associated with it. So in Italy, they were the black shirts and Germany, they were the brown shirts. I think in England, it was the green shirts and whatever the, whatever color they had in France or whatever it was. Um, Adolf Hitler becomes the leader of the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, or the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Uh, his main view is to try to take over the German government, and if he does, try to return Germany to the glory days. The glory days, of course, being pre-World War One. Now, Adolf Hitler... Um, some background for for him. Adolf Hitler is not German. Right? He's born in um, he's born in Austria, along the border of, of Bavaria in the German Bavarian area, and then Austria. Um, he is going to grow up. Um, he has a really d uh, horrible father, much like Joseph Stalin. His father also beat him. Um, I think in one case Hitler got beaten so bad that he eventually urinated blood for a week. 
Um, so we're talking about two men who grew up to be uh, scoundrels and murderers. Um, but you looking back at their childhood, their childhood might have driven them psychologically in that direction. Um, growing up, Hitler uh, had a hatred of his father, but a love of his mother, um, but eventually um, felt that he his calling was going to be in Vienna and being an artist. Um, he is going to attempt to become a member of the university, the artistic university in, um, in uh, Vienna. Um, he's been dabbling with watercolors almost his entire uh, artistic life. But one of the difficulties that he has is actually drawing feet and drawing hands. Uh, buildings, fine. Um, but the human form he's had difficulty with. And when he attempts to pass the test to become an artist at the university or student there at the university, he does not pass the test. And so he will stay in Vienna in a very uh, anti-Semitic city um, during the time period before World War uh, World War One, uh, reading up, believing in the propaganda of anti-Semitism. And then World War One breaks out. And Hitler decides that he is not going to join the Austrian forces, but he's actually going to cross into Bavaria and join the German forces. And he will um, fight in World War I. Uh, he will win the Iron Cross on two occasions, one of the Germans' highest honors. He, um, he got caught in a gas attack on one occasion, and that actually damaged did some nerve damage on his uh, left hand. If you've ever seen uh, video footage of Hitler giving speeches, um, his mobility is uh, very much off. Um, he was also somebody who had was very nearsighted, but refused to wear glasses. He thought that if you wore glasses, that would make him look weak. So in, in giving speeches, the type, the font on each one of the speeches are, is huge to allow him to get away with not having to, uh, to wear glasses. Um, he was a vegetarian, uh, believed in animal rights, that animals should be taken care of. Um, kind of a contradiction, right? You, you hear Adolf Hitler and you think all these nasty things and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, he looked, he took care of or wanted to take care of animals at the, uh, the time period. Um, you don't want anybody to abuse animals, uh, opened up zoos in, uh, in Germany. It's a fascinating character, uh, in total, of course, you know, moronic and idiotic and a murderer of people surely. But, um, when you look deeper into him and you, there is an, an interesting fellow, and I think his interest is what really drove a lot of the Germans towards him, plus the propaganda, surely. Um, the next image that you have here are the beliefs of the National Socialist Party, the German uh, Nazi Party. Uh, one was the Aryan race is supposed to be superior. Uh, the Nazis called themselves the Ubermenschen, uh, Uber meaning super or uh, master mention men, uh, super race or master race. And everybody else were part of the Unda mention. So Uber, Super, Unda for under mention, the lower races, which Slavs and, of course, Jews were going to be um, the, the target of the propaganda of being the lower classes, the lower races. The Nazis felt that the Treaty of Versailles was an outrage and that the Nazis wanted to out or overdo the or outdo the or get rid of the Treaty of Versailles and the 33 billion over 30 years and get rid of that, especially the war guilt clause, which for a lot of German soldiers, uh, they felt was the Democratic Weimar Republic stabbing them in the back. Already since the, the end of World War I, almost instantly, there is a myth that's going around saying amongst the, the former members of the German military that because Germany was not defeated on a battlefield, and because Germany was not invaded, that Germany did not officially lose this war. And that uh, only on the battlefield, according to the 
World War One veterans. Only on the battlefield would the Germans have eventually won. But because the cowardly Democratic advisors of the Weimar Republic decided to stab the German soldiers in the back um, and sign the Treaty of Versailles, that was the only reason why Germany lost. Otherwise, they would have won the war. Uh, the Nazis are vowing to take back the German lands the Treaty of Versailles took from them, and they want more Lebensraum. Lebensraum means living space. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a commercial a couple years ago. It was a furniture store called Living Spaces. Well, that might be a way of, of helping you remember what the Nazis want. They want more living space. They want more area uh, to grow. According to the Nazis, because they are a superior race, they're in small areas in Germany, they need more room to grow, more living space. And that living space, according to the Nazis, is going to be in Russia. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, already Hitler, as a young man, after he, he joins the war, he becomes part of, um, as a uh, veteran, he becomes part of the German Workers' Party and eventually takes over that party and makes it into what we know as the National Socialist or the Nazi Party. Um, he will attempt to overthrow the state of Bavaria. He's going to come into Munich with a load of Nazi goons um, in what becomes known as the Beer Hall Putsch. He'll try to overthrow the state by taking over a beer hall. Um, Bavarian state police come out and start firing upon the Nazis. Uh, Hitler is arrested and he is eventually thrown in prison. I think it's for supposed to be in there for a couple of years and eventually he only gets like four months or whatever the case might be. He was such a popular character at the time because a lot of Germans were suffering. Germans were suffering, as you guys noted from the uh, slides on the Great Depression, the interwar period, from hyperinflation. There was a lack of jobs, but rich and poor were suffering. And so the German people wanted an answer. They wanted an easy solution. And they oftentimes turned to men like Hitler, not just Hitler, but men like Hitler who were going to come up with solutions quickly. They were going to come up with something instant because it seemed to be like the Weimar Republic and democracy was dragging their feet, that there weren't jobs. Maybe if we put Hitler in power or somebody else in power, maybe his promises of if you put me in power, we'll get jobs overnight might actually take place, might actually happen. So while he was in prison, he wrote his book, Mein Kampf, uh, translates to My Struggle or um, and in Mein Kampf, and you guys will read uh, some excerpts of it, it pretty much outlines what the Nazi party is, his views of anti-Semitism, his views of taking over the world and looking for more Lebensraum in the East. Um, he will sell his, co his copies, and that's really the first time that the German people get um, a visual of what Nazism is um, and the promise of better times to come if they were to vote for Hitler. Uh, the next slide says, why was Hitler placed in power. Uh, now, Hitler was placed in power. Oftentimes, we when we think of revolutions or men like Hitler or Stalin, because they're murderers of their own people, and even Mussolini, that somehow that these men were supposed to overthrow the state and murder someone, um, open fire, uh, start a, a physical revolution in order to take over power. And that's not true. Uh, many of these men came to power during a time period known as the crisis of democracy. Democratic governments are suffering, and democracy sometimes, in times of suffering, shows off its weaknesses, that it can be easily manip manipulated, and people could potentially take over power quite easily. Just like we saw with the Russian Revolution, right? The Russian Revolution was um, came to power because Russia was teetering. 
they were on the verge of collapse during the first world war. And that's all uh, Lenin needed to do was just to kind of add weight to it to topple the whole thing. Well, it seems to be that in places like Italy and Germany, the democracy of those nations are also shaky. And that's all these men need to do is find a way, weasel their way into power, convince somebody to get into power, and they could overthrow it or take over the government from the inside out. So the slide says, why was Hitler placed in power? And Hitler was placed in power. Already in a couple of um, votes, uh, voting periods before Hitler arrival to power, uh, the Nazis has have hit their highest. I believe they're going to hit something like 37%. They've won 37% of the seats in uh, the German government. Uh, and it seems to be that Hitler is just maybe one voting period away from winning 51% of the vote, which would make him chancellor and the president of, uh, of Germany or the Reich's chancellor or the head of state in Germany. But the next voting period takes place, I believe, in 1932, and Hitler's voting power drops. It goes from 37 to something like 28 or 29%. And Hitler really believes that his time has passed, that his opportunity was just a year ago and somehow they didn't get it. Um, and maybe next time, uh, there won't be a next time. Until in 1933, um, Hitler is going to get a phone call by the president of uh, Germany. His name is Paul von Hindenburg. And Hindenburg has a problem. Uh, the votes in 1933 have come, or in 1920, 2032, excuse me, have come out. And the conservative party under Hindenburg has not won 51% of the votes in order to take over power. However, the Nazis hold the remainder of what Hindenburg needs in order to remain president. And so Hindenburg calls Hitler. This is moments after Hitler already in a diary has said that he's committed or he's going to commit suicide or thinking about committing suicide because his life has been a failure to this point. And here comes Paul von Hindenburg to ruin uh, Hitler's moment of suicide. And Hindenburg says, Hitler, if you give us your, I don't know if it was, you know, 20% votes or whatever the case might be, but if you give us your amount of votes to the conservative party, we will give you the position of Reich's chancellor. We will give you the position of head of state for Germany. And this is Hitler's ticket in the door. Once Hitler's inside, then he can manipulate from the inside, right? He just needs to get into power. And here's Paul von Hindenburg offering him that chance. And of course, Hitler says yes. That was January. A month later, on February 27, 1933, the Capitol building known as the Reichstag in Berlin is mysteriously gutted by fire. The Nazis and Hitler himself are going to use this as a, an excuse. They're going to blame the communists, the German communists, for burning down the government building. They're going to tell the German people that this is all part of a communist revolution. And if we don't act now, the communists are going to start burning down our buildings and killing the rich and taking our property. And it drives the Germans, especially the wealthy Germans, who might be probably the ones who support Nazism the most, to get scared. Uh, and eventually, when Hitler asks for a decree um, for martial law, it is given to him. If you guys turn to the uh, the next image, uh, you're going to see the Reichstag building actually on fire. Um, and then eventually, the Enabling Act is passed in March of 1924. So you should, if you go to the, the slide that says the Enabling Act of 1933, the, the Congress will vote and suspend all civil liberties um, SA stormtroopers, um, the Sturmabteilung, these uh, stormtroopers who were waiting outside the building because the government building had been burned down the Reichstag, <coughs> but the vote took place in a second building. And on the staircase that walking up, the Nazis had placed SA members 
outside the building. And as parliamentary members were going in to vote, the SA members would stop them and say, oh, yeah, I know your name. You're you know, Carl Von whatever. And I know where you live. I know that you have children. I know you have a little boy and a little girl. And it would be horrible if something would happen to your children if you didn't vote for Hitler. So as these members are walking up, they're being bullied and pressured into voting for Adolf Hitler. And before the vote actually goes down, some of the SA members are walking up and down the aisles saying, uh, a vote for Hitler or blood. If you don't vote for Hitler, there'll be blood. And when the, the votes are finally counted publicly, 440 people, 444, excuse me, vote yeah, they vote yes, and 94 vote nine or no against Germany, and Germany becomes a legal dictatorship. Hitler has not killed anyone. He has not opened fire on the government. He has not overthrown the government. Now, that's not to say that the Nazis did not bully people or beat up communists or beat up socialists in the streets. Absolutely. They used terror to get their message across but they have not killed anybody or overthrown the state. They all did it legally from the inside. If you look at the, uh, the next slide, this is uh, from the Night of Long Knives. Once Hitler is in power for um, it, up to the next year, President Paul von Hindenburg um, is um, on his way out. He's getting older and older, and eventually he, he will die. Um, but before that time, um, the army is starting to become really uneasy with the fact that Hitler has a bunch of brown shirt World War I goons that are doing his bidding. And so the army lays an ultimatum out to Hitler. It's either the army or the SA, and Hitler has to choose. But the SA are a bunch of older, you know, kind of portly rounded men, uh, and they don't have weapons, and they don't have tanks. And so Hitler will align himself with the military. And on June 30th to July 2nd of 1934, Hitler will kill off the head of the SA. A lot of these guys were his best buddies, guys who helped him get into power. Uh, they're going to be brought out in the middle of the streets at night, and they're going to be shot and killed. They're going to be said that they were caught for sedition and crimes against the state, that they were communist. Ernst Röhm was going to be arrested because he happened to be gay, and that was the, the reason he was going to be shot and killed. Anywhere, any, any 85 plus people were shot and killed and, and uh, thousands wounded. And from this point forward, the SS are the new uh, guards. The army is going to have the weapons, but a new uh, protective uh, bodyguard is going to be the ones that will come into power. And that's the next slide, the SS. So known as the Schultzstaffel. Uh, they are the terror squads of Nazi Germany. They're the, the, the black shirts. Uh, they're elite military members of, uh, of the group. They swore an oath directly to the Fuhrer, not to Germany. Uh, and they have different types. You have the Waffen-SS, which would be the military SS. You have the Einstadtsgruppen, which are mobile death squads. Uh, and you can actually see some of their work, unfortunately, for the, um, that is a Hungarian Jew who is going to be killed during the Holocaust. On August 2nd of 1934, President von Hindenburg dies. And once the president is dead, there's one symbol of power that doesn't exist anymore. And Hitler is going to create a plebiscite vote. He's going to ask the German people to legitimize him taking over both president and Reich's chancellor and become in one position known as the Führer, or the, the leader. And the Russian people are asked, and 90% of the Russian people, oh, I'm sorry, Russians, excuse me, the German people are asked, 90% of the Germans will vote ja, and 10% will vote nein. So 90% of the German people said, yes, Hitler, we like what you're doing. We want you to continue as a leader and 
you know, chancellor or president and chancellor. 10%, however, voted no. 10% of the Germans might have seen something not right with this guy and decided that he was not the best man for the job. Some of the German words to uh, to know and to remember, you'll see some of these eventually on your uh, your readings. Lebensraum, like we said, for living space. Defuhrer means the leader. Mein Kampf, that was his book, My Struggle. Uh, the Sturmabteilung, brown shirts, Schultzstaff in the SS, and the Gestapo, or what is known as the Heimstaatspolizei. Swastika, or what the Germans call the um, Hackenkreuz, or the Hooked Cross. It's really a symbol of good luck and peace. It, it, it's a symbol that's been around for something like 3,000 years. Um, and in the East, and if you're looking at it from uh, Asian culture, uh, China, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Japan, oftentimes it's been meant to be good luck and peace. And then the word Aryan is supposed to mean master race, but uh, there's not really a lot of uh, truth to that. Um, you can see some of the slides eventually. I'm just kind of going through this kind of quick. The one on mind struggle, my uh, my my comp, my struggle. There is Goring, who's the head of the Gestapo, and then the swastika, which was supposed to be for good luck and peace and love. Now the pictures that go along with the swastika, the first group that you see there, that is a group of Native American basketball players from New Mexico. Uh, they are using the swastika on their jerseys as a symbol of good luck. This is a picture that predates the Nazis and the existence of the Nazis. Even the, the Asian man that you see there with the flag, um, same thing. You might look at him and go, whoa, what is it? He's an Asian Nazi? No, because it's a symbol of good luck. It's, a, it's an, an old Sanskrit symbol that comes from uh, parts of India. And if you notice that there's been some students and uh, some people have said, well, when the swastika is turning towards the right, it means uh, Nazism when it's turning towards the left. It means peace and love. I I've seen it in every which way. Um, if you notice the Asian man, the flag that he's holding, it puts the swastika in diamond form formation, but the one on his arm makes it look like a square. It doesn't matter. Diamond, square, left, right, hooked, right, hook, left. It, it pretty much means what you want it to mean, depending on what your your uh, wish is to, to make of that symbol. If you're a Nazi, then it's going to mean what the, the, the Nazi swastika means. And you'll find that in the next image. If you're from Asia, you might mean peace and love. You, you might have walked around Uptown Whittier and seen some of the light posts. And at the bottom of the light posts, you see swastikas on there. Now, does that mean that the people who laid the posts are, are Nazis? No. Um, if you ever go out to the Japanese American Museum, they have a staircase that leads up to a balcony in uh, what used to be the old Buddhist temple. And on the staircase going up along the handrails, there are swastikas. We were there a couple years ago with some students and some students were like, oh my God, the Nazis were here. No, that's a symbol of good luck. That's part of Japanese and Buddhist culture and East, uh, Eastern culture. Uh, the next slide shows you the swastika and within Mein Kampf where Hitler actually draws his attention towards the swastika. He says, in red, we see the social idea of the movement. In white, the nationalistic idea. In the swastika, the mission of the struggle for the victory of the Aryan man and by the same token, the victory of the idea of creative work, which has uh, such always has been and always will be anti-Semitic. So here Hitler is laying down the flag, but specifically talking about how the swastika itself is to be considered anti-Semitic. Uh, some myths about the Hitler and the Nazis, you guys might have heard things like this. Um, we've already talked about are the Germans Aryans? No, they're not. Uh, that term is is thrown out there. Uh, eventually to say that they're some sort of super race. 
Uh, was Hitler Jewish? Um, that's one that a lot of people have have brought up in the past. Uh, the only the only part of the the only time that we actually see Hitler being called Jewish is when he starts his political campaigns, and his political adversaries are using his anti-Semitism rants against him to say, "Well, Hitler hates the Jews. You know why? Because he's one. He's a self-hater," and so they're kind of throwing it back at him. Um, there is supposed to be some sort of family relationship, like a, um, a grandfather on his dad's side um, might have had a handmaiden who was Jewish and uh, the girl got pregnant and that eventually became the grandfather of Hitler. Um, but there has been no DNA, no blood work, no tests that have come back to say that Hitler is Jewish. So as what we know now, the only thing we know is propaganda, political propaganda used against him. Uh, was Hitler gay? Um, no, probably not. Hitler was more asexual than anything, meaning that he wasn't overtly masculine. He wasn't um, um, you know, effeminate. He was kind of asexual. Um, but the propaganda tried to paint him off as being masculine, tried to show him as being uh, glorifying him for women. You know, there, there's imagery, crazy imagery of... Hitler going and giving speeches and the positioning of the camera, trying to show him as always being higher than the people, higher than the, uh, the women. And they would, they would purposely put women up in the front row. And um, these of course were women who were the most Nazi of Nazis, the ones who believed in the ideology and they would reach out their hands and Hitler would come down from on high and allow his hands to be touched. And these women would elbow each other, like throw blows to try to get closer and closer so they could be the one that touched uh, Adolf Hitler, and when they would leave the crowd, the camera would focus on these women, and these women were sweaty, uh, their hair was undone, it looked like they had perhaps uh, come out of some sort of sexual energy or chemistry, and, and they had just come out, and oh my gosh, they, they had a chance to touch Hitler, and it was all kind of, it was propaganda, it was all a way to have women who would eventually, across Germany, watch that imagery and try to convince them that you want to be like those women. You want to be in the crowd. You want to try to reach your hand out and get as close uh, to Hitler as possible. Um, Hitler did marry. He married Eva Braun, his longtime lover, um, two days before he and her both committed suicide in a bunker in, in Berlin in 1945. When they were dating, um, there was no call or no uh, information to say that they ever slept together. Um, we, we do know that some of the Nazi officials would, would say that when Hitler and Eva would go down to their uh, resting quarters or their living quarters, that Eva would turn right to go into her room. He would turn left to go into his room, and they didn't even sleep in the same room, which then kind of adds speculation to say, well, if they're not sleeping in the same room, then they're not having any uh, engagement of sex. We also have diary entries that come from Hitler himself uh, saying that while he was in Vienna, that some of his male friends would come and spend the night at his house and he would uh, have them sleep in the same bed as him. Uh, but this is more of a cultural practice than anything. You're in a one bedroom apartment and you're having your friends come over and there's, there's no other place to sleep except for the bed. And so if you share a bed with somebody, it doesn't mean that there's anything sexual going on. Uh, but a book came out in uh, the 1990s called The Pink Swastika. And it was from two very conservative and religious men who were trying to show um, Nazism and the propaganda of trying to be or trying to show them that they are overtly gay. Um, 
some imagery showed, you know, men without shirts that are touching each other on the shoulders and saying something like, Hey, you know, you're a good German or good, good job, uh, man. And so these guys are writing that the imagery itself tries to depict these men as being, uh, as being gay, which of course, um, goes to the extreme to say that if Hitler was gay and Nazism was gay, then that means that gays are responsible for the Holocaust. And when gay communities heard about that, they had an outrage and uh, went publicly against the book. Uh, but it's called the, the Pink Swastika. It's, it's not a great book to, to read if you guys are interested. Um, the last slide here you have totalitarianism in review. And once again, it is a political system in which the state holds total authority over all Europe, the aspects of life, public and private. Uh, Stalinist Russia, Mussolini's Italy, and Hitler's Germany all followed a model of totalitarianism and a dictatorship, right? But are all three of these men and the style of government that they run, do they all match up with the definition of totalitarianism? And that's what you guys need to find out. Read the sections from the textbook, make sure you answer the questions, do your Venn diagram, and don't forget in the end, you wanna to respond to that question, but instead of writing it in your packet, please make sure you respond to it and submit it on Google Classroom, all right? Can't wait for your guys' answers. Hopefully you enjoyed. I'll hear from you guys on Remind or on Google. Enjoy yourselves, guys. Stay safe.